Oh, so beautiful to hear God's people praising him with song. You guys are amazing. It sounds so good. Really appreciate it. So please find your way in God's word to Romans chapter 2, verse 17, or somewhere around in there. You know, we're working our way through chapter 2. We're going to make it. We're going to finish it today. No amens? Okay, that's good. All right. <laughs> we left off last week at verse 16. With a verse that I have grown to love, Paul said, according to my gospel. And I asked everyone last week, I said, can you make that statement that it, it is the gospel of Jesus Christ, your gospel? Do you claim it as, as my gospel like Paul did? Do, do you own it? Do you love it? You know, Paul did. Th think about this. By the time Paul had written this letter to the church in Rome, he had been teaching and preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ for around 20 years. 20 years. He definitely owned it. It was his. He loved it. In spite of all the beatings, the shipwrecks, persecution, jail time, after 20 years of all this stuff, Paul says, this is my gospel. Paul showed us how to own it, how to own it. He got beaten so badly that they believed he was dead. They throw him outside of the city wall. Paul wakes up, knocks the dust off, blood off his lip, cleans his nose and says, you know, on to the next town, I'm going to preach the same gospel for which I almost just got murdered. That's a man who loved and owned the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul set the example, did he not? I pray we all have the same heart and love for the gospel as Paul did. As we have seen in our text, though, we see that Paul's been teaching about sin, the judgment of God, and accountability here in Romans. He, he's teaching on those three things, which is probably why people gave him a whooping and threw him over the wall. You know, it's not a very seeker-friendly message that Paul's out there starting off with, you know. The, and the truth is, it is all of mankind is under judgment. You know, Paul has exposed in these first couple of chapters here in Romans the sins of both the righteous and the, I mean, the unrighteous and the, and the self-righteous. You know, on one hand, we have the ones who just live a life with no regard to God and holiness. And now on the other hand, we have the ones who think they are holy because they do not commit the sins that those people do. So we have the unrighteous and the self-righteous. And, you know, that pretty much covers everybody if you think about it. But, but, but Paul has one more group of people that he, he has to address here in chapter 2, and that's the Jews. And he has to make sure that the Jewish nation understands the complete plan of God. They need to understand that they too are sinners and are also under the judgment of God. And this is where the division in the church of Rome kind of began. This is where they started butting heads. But this is also where Paul starts bringing the church together as one. Paul knows how to bring about unity. He's all about some unity here. Think about this. He has shown us that we all have sinned. That means we are all unified in the sin of Adam. That's unity. He then says that we are all under judgment. That's unity. Everyone is under judgment, and one day every person will stand before God and have to give an account of what they did with their life that God has given them, whether good or bad. Another way that we are unified, everyone will have to give an account. Because we have all sinned, we are in need of a Savior. All means all. 
we're unified in that too. You know, think about it. We have a lot more in common with, with each other than we think. I hear people say, well, you know, I'm just not like them. We're just different people. I can't connect with them. We don't have anything in common, they will say. Well, the way I see it, we have a lot in common. We better learn to get along, amen? With all this unity we have, there's a lot we can talk about with one another. So we need to be doing that. And of course, we all know that we are all unified in Christ. So Paul preaches unity. He, he, he just does it a little different way than most. You know, he begins with sin in chapter one and then turns his focus on judgment and accountability in chapter two. And now if you've been here for the last three or four weeks, you might be thinking, wow, Pastor all you preach is bad news. I'm a sinner. I'm under judgment. God will render to each one what is due. I will stand before God and give an account of all I've done. That's all bad news. Yeah, it is. But, but we have to understand what's going on here in the book of Romans. First of all, it would be good for you to go ahead and, and read the entire book. All right, I encourage you to go and read uh, the rest of the book. You know, that, that's the only way that, that you will be able to say, boy, I love the book of Romans. You will be able to say that when you know the rest of the story, as they say. But if all you do is read chapters one through three, then you may become depressed or feel defeated. You'd say, hey, th this is a, a sad, bad story. Where's the good news? Where's the hope? So why did Paul begin this letter this way? Well, what is Paul doing here? Why did he start like that? Well, it's, it's like I said a minute ago, Paul's been preaching the gospel for 20 years, going from town to town, synagogue to synagogue. So he's, he has a pretty good grasp on the, the questions or objections that people may have towards the gospel. And what we see, and what we see in this letter, Paul is, is actually answering the common questions that he has heard during his 20-plus years experience about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, one of the big issues that Paul is addressing that he's had to address over the years in this chapter is the, conf is the confusion the Jews are having when it comes to bringing the Jews and Gentiles together. They, they won't quite understand what was going on here. So Paul explaining to, them, explaining to them that you too are accountable to God, not just the Gentiles. Don't look down on them. We are all in the same boat. Everyone is under the judgment. Now, it, it, you're under the judgment, he's telling them, that even though that you do, did have particular privileges, which they do, it did not exempt them from the judgment of God. They did have privileges as, God, as God's chosen nation, and the privilege that they love to proclaim, and we'll see in our text today, the law, their heritage, circumcision, and the covenant. And so their thought or teaching was, because of their privileges, because God had set them apart, they would not be under the judgment. They, they would get a free pass. God would overlook them because they have special privileges. Now, I don't want to let the cat out of the bag, but when Paul gets done, they will see that there is nowhere to hide from the judgment of God except in Christ Jesus. That's the point he's going to end up making. Whether Jew or Gentile, that is everyone, 
there is only one way to be safe from the judgment of God, and that is in Christ Jesus. So, so there's your good news that you've been looking for. There's your hope, you know, that you've been looking for. But as we go through this section, we will, we will not clearly understand, as you have seen in the last couple of weeks, what Paul is getting to until we get to chapter 8 and so on. That's when all this comes together. When we get there, all of this teaching will, be, will become crystal clear to every one of us. We will be able to see that God had a plan from the beginning. And I want you to know this, too. The, the reason that I don't bounce back and forth from chapter 2 to 8 and 11, back and forth, back and forth, because sometimes it gets confusing. But also, I don't want to preach Pastor Jarrett's sermon that he'll be preaching on chapter 8 when he gets there. I already heard this. No, I'm leaving that wide open for him. I, but I, I believe it's better to, to walk through this text and, 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 and when we get to chapter 8, then go back to chapter 2 and say, wow, look what God was doing. Now you can see it. Now you can see what he's doing. It would be absolutely amazing to see God's plan unfold the way Paul had written it. Does that make sense? Everybody good with that? Good. Plus, I want you to come back and hear the rest of the story. Got a dang little carrot out there, all right? Notice what Paul is doing here. He is stripping everyone bare of everything. That everything that one that one man may may try to hold on to, let's say, that would that would give him a sense of security when it comes to the judgment and salvation of God. You see, until one can see that he has nothing to offer or that the only thing he brings to the table is sin, until he gets to that point. There is no way he will be able to cry out, God, be merciful on me. I am a sinner. Not until one knows his condition can he see that he cannot save himself. And it is then that he can cry out to God, be merciful. Charles Spurgeon says, nothing teaches us about the preciousness of the creator as much as when we learn the emptiness of everything else. When it comes down to it, the only thing that is actually precious to mankind is the resurrected King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Amen? Gentiles, chapter 1, you're guilty. Chapter 2, Jews, you're guilty. Chapter 3, everyone guilty. And if we have an ear to hear, we will see that there is good news coming around the corner. Now, back to the Jews. Take note. Paul, Paul never discounts the value of these privileges that they, they proclaimed. He never does. The, the privileges are not the problem. The problem is the Jewish nation presumed upon God's mercy and kindness. And they had been doing that for a long time. All throughout the Old Testament, you know, we're, we're safe. We got the temple. Can't tell us what to do. We got the law. Don't tell us what to do. Don't mess with us. We're God's chosen people. I mean, they, they, they like to throw it out there all the time. It was common knowledge on how the Jews felt about their heritage and their privileges. They liked, they, they liked to, to talk about it. But being, as I've said before, but being Jewish doesn't mean you are made from judgment. Actually, all these privileges, these things are, are useless if they are not an obedient, if it's not an obedience that springs from faith in Jesus Christ. Absolutely useless as we see in our text. Paul is correcting the thinking of the Jews, and really everyone when it comes to the gospel. So let's look at verse 12. I want to see how, 
I want you to see how Paul begins addressing the problem with the Jews because all this ties together into the end of the chapter. For all have sinned without the law, for all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves even though they do not have the law. They show the work of the law is written, listen, on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. On the day when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of man by Christ. So Paul begins by bringing up the law. And two things we need to take away from this section here. Verse 13, for it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. Now we, walk, we talked about this last week, you know, that just possessing the law uh, did no good. You know, they were not justified by just having the law. It is the ones who are doers, the ones who do what the law required. They are the ones who are justified. So the Jews, you know, they felt very secure because the law had been given to them. It was a privilege to be the ones that God had entrusted with the law. And, and you know, they're, you know, like we're in, a, we're in a different level here. And it is a big deal. You know, don't just, don't, Paul didn't discount it. It's a big deal that God gave them the law. But the second thing we need to see here is verse 14 through 15. For when the Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves even though they do not have the law. They show the work of the law is written on their hearts. Written on their hearts. Keep that in mind as you go through the text. Keep that in mind when you're reading anywhere in the scriptures. Paul, Paul here is, is probably referring to the promise in Jeremiah 31, 33. Remember what the righteousness of God is that Jared taught, uh, taught us in chapter one. It's God seeing God fulfilling his promises that he made to the nation of Israel, right? So listen to what Jeremiah 31, 33 says. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. God says that he promises he, that he will put his law within his people. That is the new humanity that he's creating. He will write it in their hearts. You know, this verse uh, is quoted again in Hebrews as they spoke of Jesus and the new covenant here. And if we look at the text in Hebrews, we see that the word is teaching us that when we are born again, God gives us a new heart and a new spirit. And the result is that the law of God is written in the written in scripture is no longer offensive to us. We are, we are no longer hostile to it, as Paul points out in chapter eight. We are no longer hostile to the word of God, but rather we are submissive and we delight to do his commandments. We delight. Now here in Romans, I, I believe that Paul is laying the groundwork for that new covenant that's coming. He's laying the groundwork to show who the real doers of the word are write this verse in your margin second corinthians 3 2 you yourselves are our letter of recommendation written on our hearts to to be known and read by all and you show that you are a letter from christ delivered by us written not with ink but with the spirit of the living god 
not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Speaking again to the same experience of transformation by the Holy Spirit in the hearts of the Christian. That is, Jew and Gentile alike. That's the new covenant people right there. Now, what we have to know here is that Israel has been resting on God's special vocation. The problem is they did not fulfill that vocation. They were resting in the privileges that God had given them, and the result is they were not the light that the nation was supposed to be to the world. So change is coming. That's what Paul is equipping. Change is coming. That, that, that change is the establishment of the church body that brings all together as one. That is the kingdom of God. And now the Jews have a big struggle. They, they, they have to understand that, that those who are not ethically Jewish are now inheriting Israel's role in God's purpose. This is a big deal. This is a big change. The nation of Israel, God's chosen people, have, have lived as God's people for hundreds upon hundreds of years. And they are now seeing the Gentiles, seeing that the Gentiles are inheriting Israel's role in God's purpose. That's a hard pill to swallow. That's a big change. Or, or to say the least, difficult to understand, maybe. Something I want to point out in, in this text. You know, as I, as I did research on this, I saw that many commentators would, would talk like the Jews in the church were in this huge battle. It's like they were at war with the Gentiles inside the church. And I'm thinking, now wait a minute. This letter is written to the church in Rome. This letter is written to the ones who has put their trust in Jesus. Not a very popular stance for anyone at that time. May not be popular today either, but it wasn't popular back then. So, so, so hear me out here. The Jews that are a member of the church body have already been persecuted for following Jesus. They, they've been kicked out of Rome for five years for just being Jewish. But yet they come back to Rome. They come back to the church. They are Jewish believers. They, they, they've had to... They've had some they had to have some incredible love for God to come back to the church in Rome, facing more persecution for being a believer and just being a Jewish person. See, the work that God was doing was a huge change. So I'm thinking that you know that these Jewish people in that church that people believe this was written to each individual. I I'm thinking, listen, they are wanting to work out the division between them and the Gentiles. You know, after all they had been through, I'm sure they, they, they want to know the truth. Yes, they had the vision. It was because of their lack of knowledge or understanding of the truth. Yes, they had disagreements. They, they were one of the first churches to be established. Man, they're working this out. We, we got the advantage. We can go look and they, they made an error here and an error here. But look, they're working this out. So even though when, when you read this letter, even though it may sound like confrontational that, that, that Paul's hitting the Jewish people in the church, I, I see it as a beautiful letter that gives the full gospel of Jesus Christ written with love from Paul. 
to bring unity within the body of Christ. It, it's not a gotcha letter that some like to preach. And I know sometimes the truth sounds, you know, if you just state the truth, it sounds like a gotcha moment. But, you know, this is a beautiful letter that thoroughly explains why and how God brings about redemption for fallen mankind through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Things changed when Jesus came. And sometimes, because we are fallen and hard-headed, it takes a while to get a full grasp of what God is doing. Amen? So Paul is addressing the nation of Israel. Remember, he's going back to the beginning, and he's telling God's story. And he's not just pointing out these people in the church. He's addressing the nation of Israel, not the individuals in the churches we will see. So look how Paul is rolling this out here. He first says, you have the law. God has given the nation of Israel the law. You possess it. You have, written, you have the written word. That is a privilege. But just possessing it does, does no good unless you do it. And so then he rolls in. Who are the doers? So he's asking, who, who are the doers? It will be the ones who have the spirit, he said. The ones who now have the law written in their hearts, no longer written in stone. The doers, that is the ones who are of the kingdom of God, have it in their heart. So you see the change? You know, they had it written in stone. Now the doers, the real doers, are the ones who have it written in their heart. Change is happening. God is grafting in the Gentile nation with the nation of Israel to create one family. Paul continues. He's covered the possessing of the law, and he has to show that there is no security from God's judgment for, for possessing the law. Now, now he turns to the heritage, you know, the Jews. You know, they have put their, their security in their heritage. And so Paul wants to point out to the nation of Israel that they have been called to be the divine answer to the world's problem. They were to be the solution bearers. They were to be a light. They were to lead the people to the one true living God. But instead of being a doctor that can help with the healing of the sick, they, as a nation, have become infected with the disease. The Jews themselves have become compromised. Look at verse 17. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourselves are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of, foolish, of the foolish, a teacher of children, having a law that an embodiment of knowledge and truth. You then who teach others, do you teach yourselves? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. For it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. So Paul says, you, you claim the name Jew, but are you, are you true to it? Do, do you know what that really involves? You see, the, the name Jew suggests a special status. It actually means praise, but, but there are three words that are indicative to these people. They could be called Hebrews. You've heard that, right? The Hebrews basically in, indicated their language that they use. They could be called Israelites. That indicated the land, the land in which they lived, the Israelites. And they could be called Jews. That's their nationality. 
the term Jew spoke of their nationality, of, of their race, their heritage. You know, it separated them from other nations and from other Gentiles. A Jew was the unique people of God, and it was a title of honor to be called a Jew back then. They, they were proud to be called a Jew. Maybe not so much today, and I think they, they lean more towards Israelites than, you know, Israelis than they do the name Jew. But, but nothing is wrong with being proud of who you are. I'm proud of myself being a Christian. I don't mind that at all. I, I'll, I'll proclaim that from the rooftops. That's good. But the problem here, as I pointed out earlier, God has called this pe his people, and he, he said, you go and take the message to the, the world that, that I gave you. I gave you the law. You take it to the world. You take it to them. But they were so proud about who they were and the uniqueness of their relationship to God that they didn't want to tell anybody. Israel become a group of people who said, we are God's chosen. Let's just sit back and enjoy the ride. We don't have to do anything. We are secure. Sounds like that Christian we talked about last week, right? It says here that they rely on, on the law. The word rely means rest on. They, they had found security and comfort in the possessing of the law and who they were in their heritage. So we just sit back. We don't have to do that. So Paul brings this to light. He says, you boast in God, Paul says? You boast? How can a nation that has completely failed to be the light of the world claim to be keeping the Torah? How can you boast in God? They thought they were so special, so great, that God had to show them favor. They thought they could live any way they wanted because they were God's chosen. And so they would boast on who they were. They boast in God. And, and Paul said to the Jew, you have, forfeit, you have forfeited the right to boast in God. You, you can't boast just because of your heritage. I believe we can see this clearly on how they felt about their heritage and see the state of the, of the nation. If we go to John 8, 31, you could turn over there if you'd like. This is how they felt about their heritage. This shows you how deep this went into their souls. John 8, 31, here we have, we see Jesus confronting the Jewish leaders. He says, if you, imbibe, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Well, this immediately angered the leaders. Well, what do you talk about being free? We free, you know? They're, they're, they're barking back here. They answered him, we are, listen, offspring of Abraham, and we have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Well, what a ridiculous answer. When they said that, they were in bondage to the Roman Empire. <laughs> As they're talking to Jesus, they're in bondage saying, we've, we've never been enslaved to anyone. And, and if you look back, they've pretty much been in bondage to everyone <laughs> throughout the whole history, you know. But they were blind because they were so secure in, as Adam's seed. They felt that they could live like they wanted, no matter what was going on around them. Verse 34, Jesus answered it. Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So, so you may think that you are sons of Abraham, but I'm telling you, you are slaves. You are in bondage, not the son. Verse 36, 
So if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are offsprings of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place with you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father, implying, you know, we have different fathers. And if you're really offspring of Abraham, why are you trying to kill me? I, I'm an offspring of Abraham. You're going to kill me? They answer him, Abraham is our father. You know, they're whipping out the heritage card. Right here it is. Abraham's my father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is, this is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works your father did. They, they said to him, we, we are not born of sexual immorality, taking a jab at Jesus, you know, about his uh, uh, virgin birth there. We have one father, even God. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father and the devil, and your will is to do your father's desire. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in truth because there is no truth in him. You, you, see, you see how deep that is in them? They believed they were spiritually secure because they were the seed of Abraham. Jesus said, you are physically from Abraham, but spiritually, your father is the devil. This is how far the nation of Israel had gone away from God. Their mindset was we do whatever we want. We have one father. God's our father, they say. God's our father. Do you remember what John the Baptist said to the Pharisees when they came down to the river? When he saw the Pharisees in Matthew 3, 7, and the Sadducees coming to the baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers, which is a great way to greet people, I guess, but you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? See, they knew the wrath was coming. He said, bear fruit in keeping with repentance and do not presume to say to yourselves, listen, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. In other words, John says, don't tell yourself that you're okay because Abraham's your father. Don't tell yourself that you're secure because Abraham's your father. So you see what's going on here? Everyone, everyone knew that the nation of Israel was not the light into the world. Everyone, common knowledge. Everyone knew of their pride and how they looked down at the rest of the world instead of leading them to God. They were not sharing the cure for mankind because they had become infected. And that's, that's why Paul says this back in Romans verse 19. He says, and if you are sure that you yourselves are a guide to the blind, light to, the, light to those who are in darkness, instructor of the foolish, a teacher of the children, having the law, the embodiment of truth, of knowledge and truth. So Paul says, you know, hey, here, here's a list of what the nation of Israel should have been doing. Here's the list. This is what the Jews are supposed to be sharing and teaching to the world. Paul says, if this is what you're supposed to teach, are you teaching it to yourselves? Verse 21, you then who teach others, do you teach it to yourselves? And he goes down this list. You preach against stealing, do you steal? 
You know, you commit adultery, you, you preach against committing adultery, but do you do it? You arbor idols, do you rob temples, you boast in the law, dishonor God? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law, for it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Now listen, I want to point out here. It, it, Paul's not saying that all the Jews or the ones in the church steal or commit adultery or rob temples and so forth. The you that he has here in verse 21 is not every Jewish individual. Paul, Paul's speaking to Israel as a whole, as the nation. He's not speaking to the individuals of church like I pointed out earlier. This is not a gotcha letter church here. He's giving the full gospel. Paul's point is that the practice of these sins exists and bring discredit on Israel, the ones who are to be teaching as the light of the world. The privilege of being the creator's chosen people is falsified if theft, adultery, and so forth are ground within the nation. That's what Paul's saying. The presence of misbehavior within ethnic Israel renders void the, nas the national ability to boast that they are Jews. It prevents Israel from feeling its calling to be the light of the world. And what's the result of that? Well, he says it right here. The name of God is blasphemed among the world because of you. This is the real problem. And it takes us back to chapter one. The real problem is Israel's failure to bring God worldwide honor. They chose not to glorify God. They were, they were given the Torah in order to bring honor and glory to God and, and to the nations and to, the, to God, to the nations. Instead, the pagan nations scorn the true God on the basis of behavior of the covenant people. It's like, why well, want anything to do with your God? So I guess it does matter how we behave, doesn't it? God's speaking about the nation of Israel here, yes, but you know, this applies to the ones who are doers, who have the law written on their hearts, who are, the ch who are a child of God, who is a child of God. Who, who belong to the kingdom of God, it matters what we do. Because just like the Jews, we are called to be a light to the world, right? We are to bring honor and glory to God and not blaspheme his name because of our actions. Amen? We see that it's not the possession of the law that matters. The real doers of the law are the ones who have the written law in their hearts. We see that just because you are a physical descendant of Abraham, it does not make you spiritually secure. It is the ones who, as Jesus says, abide in my word who are truly my disciples. So Paul has covered the law and the heritage, and next, the sign of the covenant, circumcision, verse 25. For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the, break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. So as we know, circumcision was the badge of identity marking out the Jew from the pagan world. 
But since the law had been broken, since they were breaking the law, the circumcision tells a lie then. A good way to look at this is what Paul's saying is like a pastor, a man, you know, I'm claiming he's a man of God and his life's a wreck. He's out there lying, cheating, stealing, committing adultery. His actions is terrible. His life is anti-God. And he's going around handing out his God card, you know, claiming to be a man of God. And the people would say, you know, there, there's no way. You can't be a man of God. The things you do disqualifies you for being a man of God. Kind of the same thing here. The Jews broke the law and yet was handing out a card saying, hey, hey we're law keepers. But it didn't matter what was on their card. It was their actions that mattered there. And that, that's what Paul is saying. Circumcision is indeed of, of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcised. That, that is no value. It actually becomes a badge of exclusion rather than inclusion. So what matters is keeping God's law, not an outward sign. Again, here we see Paul's laying the groundwork for the new humanity that will come. The grafting of the Gentiles, grafting in of the Gentiles. He brought, he brought up that point earlier, if you remember. He said, it's not the ones who possess the law. Listen to this. The ones who do not possess the law, that is the Gentiles, will judge the ones who do have the law. I mean, that, that's a big change here. And the same thing is happening here, verse 27. Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law and paul makes that this eye-opening statement verse 28 for no one is a jew who is merely one outwardly nor is circumcision outward and physical but a jew is the inwardly and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit not by the letter here we go back to the heart all three privileges that they're proclaiming, Paul takes them back to the heart. It's about the heart of man. These are the people who are members of the new covenant. This is the new humanity. This is the kingdom of God. Paul is referring to the ones that the gospel of Jesus Christ has done its work in them. It is through this new humanity that we see the righteousness of God. That is, God has kept his promise. They have come true. God has done in Jesus and the Spirit what he promised he would do. The result is the creation of the people of the new covenant, Jew and Gentile alike. The nation of Israel did not expect God to fulfill his promises the way he did. But he did it through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. It was unexpected and probably shocking. What was the saying? Cursed is the man that hangs on a tree. How did Jesus fulfill this? How did he fill his, his promises? Not like they expected. So what do we see in this text at the end of chapter 2? It's really the groundwork for the creation of the new covenant people here. They are the ones who fulfill the law whether they are circumcised, whether or not they are circumcised. It is the ones who carry the covenant marks on their hearts rather than their flesh. They are the ones who carry the law in their hearts, not in their hands. 
They are the ones who are a child of God because of the spirit of God lives in them, not because of their lineage, not because their lineage goes back to Abraham. These people show who they are. These people are the ones who receive their praise, not from man, but from God. So as we see, when Jesus came, changes happened. And, you know, this is the self-examination time, looking back at all we've learned about the, the Jewish nation. It's time to examine your heart and see if you're a member of the new covenant family. You know, do you have the law written on your heart? Are you a child of God because the spirit lives in you? Not because of who your daddy is? Are you the one that seeks praise from God, but not, not man? Is the gospel of Jesus Christ your gospel? Next week, Paul is going to answer the question that every Jew would have after hearing everything that he just said. Chapter 3, verse 1. And what advantage has the Jew? He just took away everything we had. What advantage has the Jew? Come back next week. We'll find out. Pastor Ryan.